Jay, what's happening? <laughs> what's going on, man? Super excited to have you on because this this is this is long overdue for for many different reasons. The two of them being number one, you are now the wildly popular host of a seeking wisdom show called Exceptions, which we're <laughs> going to talk about. But you're also a newly a newly minted author with a with a book out. So congratulations on that. I've seen a ton of basically my judge for if anything is successful is like, do I see a lot of tweets about it and so congratulations <laughs> how, how, how is uh w- when did the book come out a couple weeks ago october 1st yeah okay. self-published first book october 1st it dropped i was doing a pre-sale before that which maybe explains some of the tweets because i have a i'm very lucky to have a lot of people that are interested in my work and they were like excited before it came out but it is yeah. officially live now and in, in all formats and how would you describe? So I want to talk about I want to talk about seeking wisdom. I want to talk about what you've learned from from these companies, but I also want to talk about the book. But before we get into the book, I want to know about the process of writing a book because this is something that you know you see like okay, everybody knows books. There's a big process to it. But I want like as a marketer behind the scenes, like what have you been going through the last? Well, I guess the last three four weeks is the fun part now because the book is out. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, rewinding back, like what's when did you decide to do this, and like what's the whole process been? I love that you went right here because I had a phone call or a video chat rather. I did a Zoom call with like 25 of my newsletter subscribers because yeah. people were so interested in this process that I said, yeah. why don't I just talk about it? So the first moment where I said to myself proactively, I'm writing this book before there was mm-hmm. a name was December of 2017. So like wow. for those interested, the timelines are important. So December 2017, I begin to draft what they call a book treatment which is basically a blurb, kind of like the front and back of a book jacket. When you read like, what's this all about? We pick it up in a store, you draft a blurb and then you do an outline and that together is called a book treatment. And I started to compile that plus a whole lot of stories and research from my podcast in December of last year. And it came out October of this year. And that's a fast process. So that's like the first thing that people need to know. Okay. But, and then, and you you decide to do that. And then I want to know the process for writing the book, because to me, I don't know how I would even do it. Is it like one hour a day? Is it, you know, you, you commit time every day or do you, do you break it off in chunks? Like where the hell, where the hell do you even start? I don't, I have no idea. Right. Cause it's not, it is not my full-time job. It supports yeah. the job. My full-time job breaks into two halves, which is public speaking. So I'm on the okay. road several times a month giving keynotes and then creating documentaries in audio and now video for brand clients like Drift. And so there's a lot of big blocks of deep work I need and it's hard to interrupt that with writing. So So I did two things or three things, really. So the first started long before that December go mark, which was I was building my own podcast on Thinkable and logging all these stories and working them and aerating them and getting feedback on them for like two years. So I I, I love that process, actually. Like I think there's a bunch of people. So there's I think there's kind of two ways to do that. I mean, uh, there's two ways I've seen that. So there's like the Tim Ferriss style, which I don't know if you love that or not, which is basically he took every, you know, he took a hundred podcast interviews and was like, here's a book. But the other one that that I'm actually finding right now is Scott Belsey. He has a he has a new book called the the messy middle. Right. And what's interesting is his process for that book was just like while he was running his company, he was kind of just saving all this like personal stuff in Evernote. And it's actually something I I just picked up from him is like I've always kept a swipe file, but I've kind of kept a dedicated note book about drift and unique things that are happening here because I want to be able to write a book about this place one day. And I've just like, I think that will make the inevitable writing process easier because I have some somewhere to go off of. Yeah. And if I could make one observation on that. So 
Well, I think it's endemic to the way I like to write. I'm more of a reporter in that I'll like, I'll do some personal storytelling, but this book and, and my show are not like about me or necessarily like my advice. It's all about story. And then the, I distill the story into frameworks and heuristics and all that good stuff. But because that's how I write, I, I think, and you might find this too, Dave, like when you log information about drift, focus on the moments of conflict and frustration, because that's the missing piece in so many story or so many business books, really. Like people are like, I tell a story and I'm like, no, you don't. You just state the facts as you see them. What's missing is some kind of moment of question that's open-ended that you have to go explore or the protagonist encounters some moment of desperation or conflict. You know, it doesn't have to be huge, but I think right. those are the most important pieces that make up an actual story and gets people hooked. And that's actually really missing in a lot of, a lot of business books. So in this case, well, it's really yeah. heavy up on conflict and story for my book. I love that because I because I think a lot of you know ultimately most business books are the same. The similar story. There's a similar similar facts that similar things that happen. So if you can level that up with the story, that's what makes it interesting, right? Like you and I could have two different businesses and the five facts are the same. But if we, you know, if your business was amazing and mine was like you know rife with with struggle, then like that would be different, right? And so so I, I love that. I love sprinkling in with stories. So your your writing process is some combination of writing and then stitching together lessons that you learned in, in these conversations over the last couple of years doing your podcast? Yeah, let me give it to you really in brief so you get all the parts. So I had that backlog. I mined that backlog for what I thought would be the right order of stories and the right insights from those stories, put it into my outline. So now I have an outline and a blurb about what the book is about. So that's like my North Star. Then I put together... I don't know if there's a real name for this in, in writing books or creating documentary series. I just call it an extraction. I basically go, and this doesn't matter if it's a book or a show, but I go to something I admire from way outside our echo chamber. So in other words, like not a marketing book. And I'll extract the underlying format and framework from somebody I admire. So a really easy example is with a book, I someone turned me on to the work of Charles Duhigg, who's a wonderful writer, wrote the book Power of Habit. So what he does, somebody pointed this out. They're like, Jay, you're similar to this guy in, which I later find out is a huge freaking compliment because this guy's amazing, but like, and I'm nowhere near him, but he writes stories that intertwine with lessons and questions to ask yourself instead of what like Gladwell does where he writes a story and then breaks from it to give you a lesson. That's like more of a staccato or broken up approach that I really didn't want in this book. So I went to Duhigg, I read a couple chapters, I picked one I liked and I tried to document the beats that make up the chapter, like, okay, like block one, opening story. And it's like these five parts. It's like introduce the character in vivid detail, move right away to the conflict in two or three paragraphs. Here are some questions that come to mind that you want to know about this person. And then move to block two, which is like how this reflects on our work. Like he's got this real interesting format. So I extract that framework. And now I can bring that with me to Google Docs and just copy in the structure and then start adding my own content. And it like it's basically guardrails and goalposts. It's not copying the format or even the tone of voice he has because I'm a very different writer, but it's like the framework of how to get my ideas onto a piece of paper. You're not from Massachusetts, but you almost said ideas, which is pretty good. I know. I almost did. That's what I learned living in Boston for 10 years. The ideas don't go away. They move. If you're listening to this right now, what Jay just broke down is so important and we don't do it enough as marketers, which is copy other people. You have to copy somebody else. And I know that 
that that is like you're going to read that advice, listen to that advice on the surface and say, well, copy somebody else. But to me, that like we talk a lot about role models and like what you did was you found a role model for an author. So you found a common pattern. You found somebody who has done this thing that you're going to go try to do before. And then you created your version of it. It's like a map, right? It's not, So this is why I don't think of it as copying. It's like a map because if you were going to go drive from Boston to where you are now in New York or, or Connecticut, right? I wouldn't just figure it out along the way. I would find somebody who's gone there. I would find the map and I would find how to get there. And that's so important for anything that we do in marketing where like we have the gift of time where most people have done something before. Of course, there's an opportunity to innovate and do something brand new on top of that. But like you weren't the first guy to write a book. And so <laughs> and so you you were able to go and find somebody whose style that you liked and whose patterns you could you could learn from. And so you found Charles, you found his books, and then we're able to make your version of that. Right. And that as part of my process, I like to say, you got to find the framework, but then this is the more important part. You got to break the framework. So this book, I mean, I wouldn't be living up the ideas of the book if I didn't do that. The book is about how to make the best decisions for you, regardless of the best practice, which I don't think we really talk about enough. We're always seeking a right and a wrong answer in theory. This is about getting into your specific context and making better decisions for you and your team and your customers. And so if that's what the book is about, I couldn't just wholesale copy. So this is what it comes down to. Stand on the shoulders of giants. Don't lean against them like a crutch. That's really what it's about. Love that. Okay. What was the, before we talk about the stuff you wanted to talk about, I'm just going to grill you. <laughs> Give me a learning from the book process harder than you thought, something that was harder than you thought and something that went better or was easier than you thought? Ooh, that's a great question. So easier than I thought was, you know, just writing the actual thing because it's just about focus and drive and I love to write to boot. So I would write every morning at least two or three times a week at my favorite coffee shop for three hours from open to like 11 a.m. And then every Thursday was writing day. I blocked off all other work. So that's kind of how I compartmentalized the writing. That was easier than I thought. I didn't think it would be that difficult, but it, it flew both because of that commitment and because I had all this backlog content and the structure from Duhigg. Harder, honestly, I was writing for exceptions. I was writing for my own show. I was writing for speeches. Very different styles when you write for those experiences than when you write a book. Like the classic advice for when you write is show, don't tell. But actually, when you write for audio, you got to tell a little bit more because you can't see anything. And you know you're going to have the opportunity to articulate the words that you're trying to say, right? Like, But people reading your book are not hearing you. Well, I, I mean, if there's an audio version, they would. But right, like if you're writing a script for a podcast, you can basically control how you want to dictate oh my that God. as opposed to letting somebody else do it, which I know for me, the way that I write my notes. So actually when I was at my previous job, I, I did a, I basically produced a podcast with the CMO of HubSpot, Mike Volpe at the time. And I had to like, I had to prep him for these interviews with some big name CEOs and execs or whatever. And I, what I realized is I was writing the notes as me. And I, I even do this today as I, you know, I work with our CEO, David, and, and we, we work on a lot of, you know, writing and presentations together. And I oftentimes write them as me because I know that like it's going to get a chance to be narrated. So I, I totally see that process playing out as a book. And you have to think about like, I'm not going to be sitting on somebody's couch reading this to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem with audiobooks is they're read. They're reading something that's meant to be read 
in silence out loud. And so when, when I did my audiobook, I pulled from my lessons doing podcasts, tried to perform it a little bit more versus like when I wrote, I had to get back into my writing voice, not my performing or, you know, out loud voice. It's very different. It's a subtle nuance. I found it more difficult, but also more exciting as a maker to try and navigate that, you know, and then I, I also self-published it. So I worked with a publishing service, but I didn't go through a traditional publishing house because I, I value the control and the business that I'm in isn't to sell books, it's to sell speeches and shows. So I want more creative control. I also want more pricing control because on the back end, I know it costs me four bucks a book to print through Amazon. And when I do that in bulk anyway, because those are the author copies and I can order as many as I want. And then I can put a margin on top of that and pass that through to say a speaking gig or to you know somebody who in their corporation wants to buy a bundle. And I get to set that price. I'm not beholden to any other publisher that's like, well, we have to make our cut too. So there was a lot in that process that's pretty hairy that I navigated for the first time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could do a whole like show on the book process and self-publishing. Do you think do you think that's going to be the future of, of more people, even like a business like us, if we're going to publish a book? Like, Do you see more people going the self-publishing path? I think so because there are certain things that you shouldn't do alone. And there are certain things that are more expensive if you hire a freelancer alone, like the interior layout of a book really does make or break the experience, like down to the margin of the page. That's what makes it look premium or not. So I didn't want to go through that hassle of finding somebody alone. So I did what they call hybrid publishing. This is a service that I hired. They offer all the backend stuff. I brought them a manuscript and a cover design and also did the audio files myself. And they took it the rest of the way. And it was great. And I think if you look at the traditional publishing houses, they promise marketing knowledge. Honestly, DG, if you worked with one of these places, you would laugh at how outdated their marketing approaches are. They just don't get it. I'm going through this process right now. I can tell you more stories later. There's a lot. There's, I mean, so much has changed. Like, I think of this a lot. I actually think a lot of marketing knowledge in general, separate from the publishing industry, is now outdated. And like, I'm looking at people who who have really done great job, you know, on, on YouTube. Like I feel like I can learn more about marketing by seeing what Casey Neistat has done on YouTube to grow to 10 million subscribers than I can from another B2B company in our industry. You know, there's just a lot to be learned from how people are using the modern channels that people are on today. Totally. I mean, really simple example, and I'll end here because I know we have more we want to get to, but when I did our all the marketing I had planned out, I filmed 50 videos, like custom quick hit videos, thanking people in my network for providing inspiration. In some cases, they were in the book. So I know I sent you in DC these videos because you guys are featured in chapter two. And so like, I told your story, I got value from you, in this case, in a very direct way, I wanted to say thank you. That's all I did with these videos. I was like, thank you. I embedded it on a landing page branded for the book. Like a publisher would not recommend doing that because it quote, doesn't scale. And I know how much you hate that phrase. Right. But that's the knowledge they have is like run ads, get into the stores, pay for placement in those stores. You know, they don't get why you would send things out like pieces of value from the book. They, they just don't think in terms of modern marketing like a Casey Neistat in your case. And so for me, it was about total control end to end from the creative to the writing to the pricing, business and marketing side. That to me is what people seek in any creative endeavor. So I do think that the big publishers are in trouble. And you see that because they reach out to self-published authors like they did with me and asked if they could put me under their label. And it's like, it's too late. Like there's no value you bring anymore. Yeah, it's too late. I love it. Okay. So tell me about what did you want to talk about, Jay? So I've been doing exceptions for almost a full yep. season now, and we're coming back with more seasons next year. I can't wait. But 
I've been like seeing these common threads in every B2B company we've profiled. And I get a chance to go deep because I talk to an executive, a frontline practitioner, and a customer. So I'm seeing it from all angles. But I tried to boil that down into like the five things exceptional B2B brands have in common. I thought I would just lay them out for people. Let's do it. Lay them out and I will will talk about them or I'll give some thoughts if you want my thoughts. No, let's do it. I love that. So let's go from, we'll go from like most obvious, obvious isn't the right word. Like let's go from simplest to get on board with to most complex to execute. Let's Let's do do that. All right. So number one is the simple and small things, not the big and flashy things, make or break a great brand. So when I talk to like Envision is a good example. Amazing company, scaling like crazy, over 250 million in VC raised, tons of customers used by big brands everywhere. They're like examples when I asked them from the CMO to the practitioner I spoke to of like what makes them a great brand. They point to like their weekly newsletter where they do little headlines for each article and little button copy that creates some sort of theme each week. Like that's that's what they point to. Or like Gusto in the first episode sends out a you got paid email, which celebrates you getting paid and then breaks down where your money went. And it's such a simple thing that competitors don't yeah. do. And it goes viral. It's like funny. I, I, so I, just hit, I just hit my three-year anniversary at Drift and I, and I tweeted out. The way I remembered that was actually from my pay stub from Gusto. And I, I tweeted that out. And a bunch of people commented, <laughs> what, what pay service is that? I even tweeted out the amount that I got. No, I'm just kidding. No, so so look, I think I think that's a great point because I think what happens is the reason why I think the memorable stuff. A good example is like what we just saw with Wistia, right? They did this documentary that you know you talked about, and a bunch of other people have talked about, where they basically produce three videos at three different price points and then publish this big documentary about it. And I think that, that was a great campaign, but I don't think that's what people remember. They will remember Wistia's brand for because. If you only wait on those big things to let people know what your brand is, you can only do that stuff like twice a year. And there's just like, you need the day-to-day reminders. And so I do think it, it is the little things. It's how you reply to people on Twitter. It's how you respond to your emails. It's the funny thing that you do in the video. It's, oh, you know that a new episode of Seeking Wisdom comes out every Monday. I think like the consistency of publishing in all those channels over time like adds up to the bigger stuff. And it's not that, Gusto does that in their pay stub emails. It's that you get that email twice a month and you're always going to remember that. I think that's such an important piece of it. Totally. So that's number one is simple and small actually builds great brands. Don't disassociate from the ones you admire because all you see are the big projects like Wistia's documentary. It's bricks and mortar. So people remember and look at and identify the bricks, but the mortar makes it hold up. It's just not sexy to talk about. But the mortar is what makes your brand like this firm wall that people can't penetrate if they're competitors. So that's one, simple and small things. The second is like There's a range of this. Like I know you've talked publicly about Drift being kind of like a reality show in your marketing and putting faces on blog post imagery, for an example. But faces and people to the point of the employees becoming almost like recurring characters, that is another consistent theme. So Envision doesn't have faces, but you see the names and you see them on Instagram and you you meet them at their annual or uh, monthly, I should say, like customer roundtables all across the U.S., Wistia is another good example. Like you get recurring characters in their videos. So you get to know their quirks and personalities. You know, it's the old adage that people buy from people, not logos. And we're seeing that come to the front. And it's like super obvious in all these brands. They put the people at the front and center. They're not overly worried about this idea that like, what if Dave leaves and then we lose like a character on the show? They're not worried about that. They put the people out there. 
that's something that has come up so much lately. I'm glad you brought that up. How did you how did you title that? What was that lesson? What was that learning? Faces and people to the point that the employees become characters to customers. Yes. Okay. So this is obviously like what we've done at Drift, right? That's not a that's not a secret. But like, there's always one person who asks me, like, yeah, but what happens if you leave, or what happens if you get hit by a bus? And like, I hate that question so much, not because it involves me leaving or getting hit by a bus, but like, I just think that's such a limiting mindset, like that people have, which is I'd rather worry about what might happen as opposed to doing it, being real, being authentic, building an audience, building a brand, and then having that problem. Like there was somebody the other day on LinkedIn who literally wrote wrote a LinkedIn post about me at Drift and said, you know, I'm wondering if this is the right strategy or not. And I'm like, I think it's the right strategy because it's it seems to be working, right? And I'm not saying that to be arrogant, but like this has been how we've grown our brand. It's a key piece of that. And so I think it's crazy to sit around and like have that prevent you from starting, right? Like that's kind of like, you know, you talk about this a lot, right? That's kind of like the idea of like, you know, I'm thinking about doing a podcast, but like, I kind of think podcasts are, are dumb and like, I'm not really sure. Okay. So don't, so don't do it. Right. Like you have to make the choice to get started and, and same thing, like make the choice to use faces and be real. And then if you do have that scenario come up later, let that like figure it out then and, and then be a good problem to have because you've already built a brand that people want to care about. So let me pull out two lessons from both your words and mine. One is it's really about finding the version of this that works for you. You know, you might not actually have a DG or the Wistia employees out there. It might just be like, hey, this person's really funny. And while they're here, let's use that in the copy. There's other ways to deploy this. Yes. And also the other thing is people, the medium that I'm comfortable with is video, for example. Like I do a lot of videos on LinkedIn and, and other and other formats. And people often mix that up with with the advice of being real. And I'm like, look, if if you're not comfortable being in front of uh, on video, then that doesn't have to be your channel for being real and being authentic and being the face. It could be how you write. It could be an email you send out every week. It could be signing off your tweets from your brand as a person. Like that's just what happens to be natural for us and works for our business. Right. So find the version that works for you, and then the set, which is a theme of my book. And then the second is we talk about the person asking, well, what if you leave? They're focused on mitigating the downside, but brand is wholly about maximizing the upside. You know, it's this moat around your company. I've seen DC tweet that before. Like it really is this differentiator and this additive layer to everything you're doing to the point now that it is the almost the only tactic that's left that that is justifiable because it's differentiating your brand from another in a world of total choice and infinite choice and commodities. So if you're asking, well, what if this person leaves? It's like, yeah, but you they're not gone, number one. And number two is you want to maximize that effort that they can bring to your brand now. And if they leave, okay, like there's other people working for your company, do the same with them, right? And also that creates this flywheel of people who are really, really good at what they do, seeing DG's career taking off. And if you ever leave, you, people will be like, well, I want to work there too, because look what it did for him. So we got to maximize the upside, not just mitigate the downside. Totally agree. And and for what it's worth, like we're adding more people into the mix now. And so it's not just going to be DC in my, in my face. Like we got to add more people as the brand evolves. And so it's, yeah. you know, over time there'll be more. Right. So, okay, let's go to number three. So we have one is simple and small things, not big and flashy, despite the perception. Two is faces and people to the employees becoming almost characters for customers. And three, three and four really go together. Let me give you both at once. 
Three is these brands are creating platforms for their customers' careers. They're not just addressing the problems and the ideas surrounding the product. So they're kind of like product managers in that even though they're in marketing, they want to own the problem and understand it really well and not just sell them a product that solves the problem, but explore what's going on. And I'll give you an example in a second. So that's three, platforms for customers' careers. And four is in doing so, they end up marketing to the whole person. So they'll talk about tangential topics like culture and health and wellness and career paths and getting promoted. Seeking Wisdom is actually a really great example, by the way, because you have shows that are more sniper shots, which is like the traditional idea of marketing, like this show is about marketing or a show about product, a show about operations. But there are things like exceptions in the feed or things like Seeking Wisdom that are about story or more of a horizontal idea, like getting better every day. So you guys are marketing to the whole person. A really good example is Help Scout. So Help Scout has this advocacy about their customers, which are customer support representatives, not the bosses, not the suits in Nick Francis, the CEO's terms, but the actual users of their end product. And they build this platform every year on advocating for higher pay. They do studies on the salaries, like all these things reach the people and resonate with them. But they're not just talking about like seven tips and tricks for being a better customer support rep. So three and four platforms for your customers' entire careers and market to the whole person. I love that. I mean, especially today, you have to market to the whole person, right? You got to, like people want to work with people. And if I don't feel like I connect with somebody personally, like the the people whose marketing advice I, I take to heart the most are the ones who I can relate to. And so even if you are give me great marketing advice, but I don't feel like I, I know you as a person, that's going to be tougher. Exactly. And again, this is about recognizing that they're not leads, they're people, they're not, you know, MQLs, they're, you know, it's Jerry, it's Sally, it's this, this is a real problem in B2B, because we like these kind of corporate ideas, like what is business? It's this monolithic idea. I had this out of school. I don't know about you. I thought to get into the business world was to get rid of your humanity and characteristics and quirks and go like become a cog in a wheel. And that is profoundly not the case at any of these companies. It's all about the whole person, whether it's an external play, I mentioned Help Scout, or it could be internal too. You know, Buffer does a lot with a culture-based blog. And while that attracts talent to their team and attracts customers too, it makes the people that are actually working for Buffer feel better about the business because they're talking so publicly about how much they care about culture. Again, that's a tangent off of their social media marketing products, but it's about reaching the whole person and resonating deeply with them. That's four. I'm with you. Hit me with five. Cool. Let's go to five. So I mentioned we're going from easiest to get on board with to most complex to adopt. This is the most complex to adopt so far. It's sort of a a watermark for sophistication in your marketing, but every single brand I've profiled so far has this. They take a portfolio approach to their marketing. So Dave, when I say that, what idea comes to mind? I think like it's the idea, like it's less of an idea, more of just like something we've thought about a lot, which is like, there's not, to me, there's not one channel. If this was like 1998, then you could basically bank on word of mouth and email as a way to grow your business. Cause like nobody was doing anything digitally other than email. But today, how do you pick, right? Like as a consumer, I'm just looking at my phone. Like I have WhatsApp, Slack, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, podcasts, YouTube, (laughs) email, right? And so like, how do you choose which channel you're going to reach me on as a company? And so I think you have to have the portfolio approach. Now, it doesn't mean you can't afford to not be very good on one or two of those channels. But like, I think you just have to, you have to be where everybody, you know, where all of your people are. And so we, we invested in audio, we invested in video, we have an email newsletter, we have written content, we have all that stuff. And so I think 
you know, it's less about finding that like silver bullet. I think the silver bullet in marketing doesn't work. Like you used to hear all these stories about Airbnb did this thing with Craigslist or, you know, this other company was amazing at content early on in the early days of Google. And so they were able to build a moat around SEO. Like I think all that stuff is now table stakes because there's a concept we talk about a lot, which is like, there's just infinite supply in every industry, in every market, in every channel today that you have to take that portfolio approach to your marketing. I think you can have one central idea and then maybe there's one topic. Like we would break this, this would be a podcast, it'd be a video, it'd be a blog post, it'd be a webinar, it'd be a a newsletter. But I think you have to be able to be successful across all those channels. Sure, and so a couple ideas that came to mind from the series. So one is Zoom, which we haven't aired yet, which is coming up. It's going to be the season finale of season one. So get ready. You heard it here. Zoom. When I talk to them about these billboards that they do and some of their overt branding plays in the traditional sense, again, a billboard, the head of marketing there was like, those absolutely work. But guess what? We see a lift in our paid search and SEO when we have a billboard in a certain market. So one thing makes the other thing work harder. We do a lot of direct response and partnerships. You know, Under content, they have multiple things. They do basic SEO friendly stuff. And then they do some big hit flashier content. So it's about being balanced and nuanced and holistic. Another example is Buffer, not from the tactic side, but from the strategy side. They have strategies in place to generate just traffic, just get people to them. Then they have a strategy for keeping people around. So like the audience development from the traffic. Then they have community plays like behind the scenes, Slack channels and meetup groups, which is taking an audience, which is like an A to B relationship and making it interconnected with lots of nodes and lots of people. So they have strategies for traffic, audience and community. And they look at those things as different. So it's a portfolio approach. And I think, and this is just a new idea coming to mind as we speak, but it would be really interesting to see how people vet this and and decide how to do it. And I want to offer two ideas for how to do that. So one is, this comes from Manav, the CMO, new CMO of Envision. He said that while it's a portfolio approach, you kind of have to let one bent win and make sure the team knows which is which. You can be a very direct response, block and tackle, quant team, or you can be very brand and story led. And you're going to do both, but you kind of have to let one win and identify to the team that that's what matters. But then the other way to do this, which is the new idea that that just came to mind is, what if instead of letting the channel win or being like, well, we need to do these things because that's what works in our space. When you hire, which is what good leaders do constantly, when you're hiring and recruiting, what if it was like best talent on the board? I have no idea if this would work, by the way. Best talent on the board. This person, you know what? We didn't think about doing a lot of BD and partnerships for marketing, but this person's unbelievable. And we happened to come across it. I'm DG VP of marketing and I had coffee with this person and they really want to join Drift. I thought maybe we need to do more paid ads, but this person actually might be better than any paid advertising-based marketer I could find. Let me grab at the best talent on the board and sick that person loose on the world and see what they do. Because if it is a portfolio approach, if everything could ostensibly, quote, work, why not get the best freaking person that you can possibly reach and just set them loose. Yep, I love that. You learned a lot. This is good. That we're Dude, like so much in this series. Yeah. I'm so excited about what's to come. Man, this has been an amazing season one, and and there's so many more brands and and the sound and style I want to re-engineer. There's just there's just so much meat on this bone. So I'm excited for exceptions. So this is just the beginning. I've seen the paperwork. We're signing up to do a couple more seasons together, which I'm excited about because the only the only thing we're going to run out of is great brands, which I hope I hope we don't. I'm just kidding. There's probably plenty of plenty of people out there, which is why you'll go find them. Look, before we wrap up, do the uh, I feel like I'm a real host right now. Like do the thing and and plug your book. Break the wheel. In stores <laughs> now. Wheel. Yeah. 
It's available now. Here's the deal. Use my affiliate link. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So here, I'll give you one statement and you guys can decide if this is a book for you or not. So finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. How do you do that? We don't talk enough about that. We don't explore the difference between best practice and best for us enough. We certainly aren't looking at the history and science of why we decide to do certain things in business. We can look all this stuff in the eye and we can build our work based on self-awareness and situational awareness instead of what some expert or advice is. Now we can make better decisions for us which is the goal of our work. doesn't matter what the trend is. doesn't matter what the historical idea was. It matters that we're getting results or finding fulfillment in our context. So that's what this book is about, making the best decisions, not on average, not on general, but for you. I love it. All right, Jay. Well, thank you, man, for doing this. I'm, I'm super excited. I'm, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for what's to come and you know, best of luck with the book and everything. So look, go out, get yourself a copy of Jay's book and stop worrying about the best practices and figuring out what's right for your business. And look, go and get the book. And then, But before you get the book, on the way to get the book, make sure you leave a six-star review for this podcast so I can renew my job here for another year at Drift. I, I send my, my, the way that I get paid is number of reviews that we get on the podcast and I, I send them all to David and then he determines if they will re-up me for another year here. So thanks for doing it. Thanks, thanks. Everybody go pick up a copy of Break the Wheel. Appreciate your time. All right, Jay, we'll see you, man. Adios. Adios.